for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. Good to be back together again, isn't it, as family? Um, people you haven't seen for several weeks, um, people going on holiday, summer church, all sorts of things happening, but great to be together again. And uh, if you've got a Bible and you'd like to turn to 1 Corinthians... Now, I'm going to take off my watch, as they say, it doesn't mean anything. (laughs) Well, it does. I will try and watch it as I go along. Okay. So, 1 Corinthians, are you there? Um, Hopefully you can see one somewhere. If not, I'll be referring to it quite a bit as we go along, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. Well, in the the last few months, we've, we've done a series on the Trinity, Father... Son and Holy Spirit, encountering the the Father, encountering the Son, encountering the Holy Spirit. And as we move into the autumn season, we're we're beginning a series on encountering God in the church. And that's vital that we understand that, what it means to encounter God in the church. We can have personal and private experiences of God, but God has a special thing when it comes to the church. And we can encounter him here as we gather together. Now, the church is not the four walls of a building. It's not windows. It's not all of those things. It is the body of people. It is those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in this series, which is going to take us right the way through to to Christmas, we are thinking, particularly in that vein, what it means to encounter God in the church. And uh, church, church church is fascinating, And the book of 1 Corinthians is a fascinating book. In fact, it's quite an encouraging book because when you just take a first glance over the book, you discover that actually church, even in the New Testament, wasn't perfect. Church was messy. And one of the reasons is it's made up of people like you and I. People who have been saved by God but are in the process of transformation, who are being changed from one degree of glory to another. So it's, it's a messy church. And that I find quite encouraging because it rids us of this idealized view of what church should be and the way God works and the people also that he uses. And I'm just going to make a summary statement here, if you like, of what the assessment, if you like, of, of the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Corinthians is about how, how together we encounter God and work out his mind and will by listening to the Spirit in the body and so glorify his name. One of the themes that runs through this particular book is glorifying in God, that he is the the one in whom we should glory and no other. And Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, is challenging them about the way they think about certain people and situations and circumstances. So it's about how together we encounter God and work out his mind and will by listening to the Spirit in the body and so glorify his name. We need to hear that because we live in an age of individualism and we need to remember that someone a long time ago said, no man is an island. God made us uh, for one another. He made us to be together. It is the enemy's intention 
to separate people off, to, to divide and to conquer, to get people into their own little way of thinking where they, they just become holy and uh, secluded and doing mission all on their own. And they think that they've got the pure church. And the answer is they haven't. And there is no such thing as the pure church by experience. There is it through Jesus Christ, and we'll touch on that in just a moment. So, uh, it's a messy church, because it's made up of people who are messy. And, and that's the point of the gospel. This gospel is for broken people. This gospel is for people who haven't got it together. We live in a world which likes to think, I, I know how to do life. And then people hit the wall somewhere, and they find out they don't know how to do life. And they begin to ask those big questions, which Alpha refers to and explores. And I would encourage you to go on that if you don't know Jesus Christ. Just a few words about Corinth. It's good to have a little bit of background here. The original Corinth, which was a a notorious place, was burned to the ground in 146 AD by the Romans for its involvement in in, in rebellion and, uh, and and the leadership of rebellion. Many of the inhabitants were killed and and they were sold into slavery. So uh, the the original Corinth was actually left derelict. But around uh, 44 BC, uh, Julius Caesar refounded Corinth uh, because he saw that it had strategic importance. And I haven't got time to go into all the detail, but you're going to have a look at the map. It sits in a little place in that area of the world which is strategically and economically important. And it had to do with the, the movement of goods from one place to another and, and do it in a, doing it in a way that was safe. It was a key location. It had two ports to it on either side. And uh, under Caesar Augustus, it was made the capital of the province of Asia. So it's a, it's a place of, of some renown. It was well known for the, the biennial Isthmian Games, which were second only to the Olympic Games. And in its day, Corinth was indeed a thoroughly modern city. It it had the rich and the poor. It had the good and the bad and the ugly. And it wasn't that different from any other city that you and I might know today. We might say it was the New York, it was the Las Vegas, it was the London, it was the Hong Kong of its day. It was cosmopolitan, it was pluralist, there was a whole lot of religion went on there. Something like 26 sacred sites. They were into philosophy as well. And it was made up of Romans and Greeks and Jews. That's just a little bit of background. And as we go along, we'll feed into some of that. But if you've got your Bible then, and uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And Paul has founded this church in AD 50. He spends 18 months there, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 17. There's influential people, wealthy people, Crispus the ruler of the synagogue, Gaius, who has a large house, Erastus, the director of public works. Um, They are there. They are part of this church. But it is largely made up of the poorer stratas of society. Paul touches on that in this chapter. Not many mighty, not many noble. Doesn't say there aren't any, but he says not many. And so here he's writing to this church and he's he's had a bit of correspondence with them. He, He went there, he planted this church a group of people, and it's, it's discussed as whether it was uh, you know, about 100 or so or several hundred people as to how big this church really was. But it had been planted by Paul, and Paul has a, a close attachment to, to them, and they have some issues that crop up, and they write to him. And so we have actually a letter that's missing. 
So we might say zero Corinthians is missing. But it was a letter that they wrote to him, and through reading this book, we find out that they had written to him before. They'd been in touch with him, but rather, they'd been in touch with him, and he'd written to them. And, and so you've got this sense of correspondence going on between the apostle and the church that he had planted. So there was zero Corinthians, then you get one Corinthians, and then you get another letter that appears to be missing, missing and then you get the second book of Corinthians. So you, you see there's quite a bit of interaction here uh, going on. And uh, so here we are, let's, let's read through, and I'm going to pick out some things as we go along. So, first one, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and sustains our brother. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, both their Lord and ours. So Paul writes and he greets this particular church and he notes that it is God's church. It's not his church, it's not their church, it is his church. And it's always important that we remember that the church is God's. It belongs to him. Church refers to a gathered community of people who've been called out for a purpose. And in those days, it could have been anything that went on in society that related to that. And so Jesus redeems and calls out a people for a purpose, for the praise and the glory of his name, for the fulfilling of his purposes in the earth. And when we gather together, it's about knowing God and listening to the Spirit that we might understand His purposes and see them fulfilled in the day and age in which we live. So it's not Caesar's church, it's not the Queen's church, it's not my church, it's not anybody else's, it is God's church. And we need to notice that it's written to the church. There is a danger sometimes when we read the letters that we mistakenly read them as if they're all written to individuals and Many of the letters that we find in the New Testament are written to a body of people and we will only understand them when we understand that particular point. That the writers are writing to a group of people. That we do not do Christian life on our own, we do it together. And that's vitally important that we remember that. Um, Corinthians is about how together they may encounter God, how together they may hear God, how together they might process the mind of God. What we must never do is see this letter as a kind of a tick box, that if we just go through it and we've got all these points that Paul lists out, and okay, that's it, whoever you are. Paul doesn't speak like that. He he raises some big questions, and we'll touch on some of those as we we go through this particular book. Issues that relate to life in so many ways and are so relevant to today. And so when we look at this, he says, uh, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, we very often think, and we've already had reference to many of the things I'm going to touch on this morning as we've gone through our worship, but... This big word, sanctification, we, we just need to break it down a little bit. Because very often we think, our, in, in the first place, our being sanctified is about us doing the right stuff in the right way, etc. Uh, and it can so often fall into the trap of a, a list of, of do's and don'ts. And if you do the do's and you don't do the don'ts, then you're getting more and more holy. The thing is, when you look at this word in its, in its root meaning, to begin with, Uh, we have to understand that God is the only one who is absolutely holy. 
Holiness belongs to God and holiness is defined by God, not by lists that we would make that we then perform and keep. Holiness is defined by God. And the understanding of of holiness as far as we are concerned in scriptures is not defined by our performance, but by the fact that God owns us. Because whatever is dedicated to God is holy. That's, that's a tremendous concept. We very often start at the other place, the second place that flows out of that. But the important thing is to recognize that what is dedicated to God, and that's what it means in the original, it means that which is dedicated, but that which is owned by God, that which is his possession. And so you can find, for example, through Scripture, an ordinary bowl becomes holy because it is dedicated to God. An ordinary table becomes holy because it is dedicated to God. And this morning, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are holy because you are dedicated to God. You are owned by God. And it is that that makes you holy. That's wonderful, isn't it? You may not feel holy, but the fact that the one who is holy has called you and saved you has made you holy. Now, there's another side to that because he then says, you know, that we are called to be saints. So we're, we're called to live out this holiness, the fact that God has made us holy. And Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, is challenging them and saying, look, you guys, you, you, you've, you've not got it together. You've not thought this through. He says, you are holy. Therefore, live as the holy people of God. And so glorify him in the world in which you find yourselves. And then you read on down, he says, Together, or in every place, with all those who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. So he's not just writing to them, he's writing to other Christians at the time as well, who who will read this, who will hear this. He's writing to every part of the church down through the ages. He's he's writing to you and I this morning. He is speaking to us. God is speaking to us through this letter of Paul. And we need to understand that this is God's word, inspired by God. And yes, it spoke to people a long time ago, but it's here for us today as well. And so it speaks to us. Together with all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. This was not just simply a believing. This wasn't just simply a confession of faith. This was a statement of allegiance. That Jesus is my Lord. He is the one who owns me. He is the one who governs my life. He is the one I go to with respect to understanding how life works out in my sphere of life. He is the one, in other words, who we entrust our lives to. There were people in that day and age who were were saying, Caesar is Lord. And they were entrusting their lives to Caesar. And everything was about Caesar. And Paul comes along and he says, no, Caesar is not Lord. He says, Jesus is Lord. He is worthy of all our allegiance. He is worthy of our obedience. Then you go on down. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this, this is not some blessing that's coming from Caesar. The real blessings of life don't come from earthly people and powers. They come from God alone. And the blessing of salvation is God's to give. And not Caesar's or any other 
president or prime minister. And so the emphasis there is, is on grace to you and peace from God our Father. And he will ground everything here in the grace of God. So in the next verse, verse 4, he says, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God that has been given to you. Are you a recipient this morning of God's amazing grace? Do you know what it is for God to love you and to forgive you and to save you and to put his spirit in your heart so that your spirit witnesses with him and you know that you're a child of God? That is the most important decision anyone will ever make. It is knowing that God loves you and Jesus came to save you. And the Holy Spirit is presently at work, just opening your heart, opening your mind, just dropping bits of truth in. It's all right, you don't have to get it all at once, but you do need to know that he loves you and he's paid the price for your sin. And you can know him this morning before you go out of this building. You can know what it is to have God as your Father. So Paul is wanting to stress to them that the foundation of their very life, both individually and corporately, as Christians and as the church, is the grace of God. Not who they are, not what they've done. Because they think, actually, quite a lot of themselves, as you go through the book. They're quite proud in many ways of themselves. And and they think they're, they're pretty good achievers. And Paul is grounding them and he's saying, look... Whatever God has given, it is his grace that has given it to you. So, thank God for his grace. Thank God for his grace and the gifts that come by his grace. And so he he calls upon them, first of all, to, to give thanks, to be a thankful people. You know, when we cease to give thanks, it's because we have lost sight of the sovereign and gracious hand of God in our lives. Let me ask you this morning, how thankful are you? How thankful are you? We live in a world where thankfulness is increasingly diminishing. A lack of gratitude. But in the Bible, it's very important. And thankfulness displays our focus in life. Our lack of gratitude reveals how we're caught up with ourselves. And thankfulness is central to the Christian life. And so he says, you know, I I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace that God has given you. And I want to say that again. When we cease to give thanks, it's because we've lost sight of the sovereign and gracious hand of God in our lives. You know, you are more blessed by God than you are at this moment, conceive. Yeah? When we stop and we, we think, actually, this moment, I, I am standing, I am, I am breathing because God is giving me breath. It's in him that I live and I move and I have my being. I didn't choose to begin my life. I can't sustain it. Yes, I may eat and I may drink, but it's God who gives me life. At this moment, you are living because there is a God in heaven. There is a God who has power over creation, a God who is giving you life. Hallelujah. 
Turn to the person next to you and say to them, did you know God is giving you life this morning? God is giving me life. And when you know Jesus, God is giving you life in a double way. You've got it full on, brothers and sisters. Jesus said, I I, I have come to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. Yeah? Amen? 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 Amen. Good, we're getting there. Okay. Yeah, so he's given us life and he gives it to us in abundance. This is the wonderful grace of God. So through him we are enriched in every way, he says there. He is the source of our life. It's in him we live and move and have our being. And so Paul rejoices there. He says, by him you are enriched in everything, in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you're not lacking in any gift while waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, is the, he, he will strengthen you to the end so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful and by Him you were called to the fellowship of His Son or the partnership of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Yet, though they were getting some stuff wrong here, He says, I thank God for His grace that is evident among you. I rejoice in the way that you have you, the, 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 the wisdom and the speech and the, all this that you're bringing from, from the heart of God. Speech, the knowledge. You're not lacking in any gift while you wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, God is faithful. There may be somebody here this morning, you need particularly to hear that in the circumstances in which you find yourself, God is faithful. God knows your situation. He knew their situation. He knows our situation. He knows your situation. And God is faithful. God is faithful. He knows what you're going through. He knows the difficulty. He knows the prayers that you offer up day and night with tears. God is faithful. You can trust him. You can trust him. And then we begin to get into the nitty-gritty of where, if you like, Corinthians begins to launch off big time. So let me just read the next section, verse 10. Now I ask you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brothers, by those who are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. And this is, now this is what I mean. Every one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized? In the name of Paul, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I baptized in my own name. I also baptized the household of Stephanus, and besides them, I don't, rem- don't know whether I baptized any other. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. You see, the church at Corinth was in many ways, taken up with the way the world was. And performance and personality and charisma were a big thing. 
And so there was an emphasis on that kind of things. And, and people were looking at one particular individual and another particular in, individual. In there, and according to their personal tastes and preferences, they were saying, oh, I, I'm following Paul. Or I'm, I'm following Peter. And the really spiritual ones were saying, well, I'm following Jesus. And it's interesting, isn't it? He says, you know, I ask you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, his appeal is through the Lord Jesus. And it's interesting that up to this point, he has now used that term ten times. You don't notice it until you stop and look at these things. But he has referenced Jesus now ten times. And I think he wants them to get something. Guys, it's not about you. Yeah, thank God for the gifts that God has given you. And by all means, celebrate them. Thank God for them. But the reality at the end of the day is Jesus who distributes gifts. And so ten times you've got that reference there to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's, he's bringing them back from this idea of personality and power and he's rooting them in Jesus Christ. And he appeals to them to be of one mind. Now that doesn't mean he's saying, look, you've all got to like the same music or you know, you've all got to like the same sport. It's not that at all. He's, he's saying you need to be of one heart and one mind in the gospel. You need to know as a church how to discern the mind of God together in order that you might fulfill the purposes of God. It's not about us all eating the same breakfast, but hearing God and working out what it is to be of one mind. And so there were factions that are developing. And, I mean, the word that is used there. Is, is contentions, some talk about it in the way of, of argument or whatever, but it, it is quite strong. They were looking for wisdom, but they were looking for it in the wrong place. They were looking to personalities and to charisma, and with that came arrogance and pride. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter, I follow Christ. It led to rivalry, quarrels, Fighting, according to which version you read. It's about styles, about giftings, about who you are more personally drawn to, and they became divisive alliances. Paul says, this, this isn't good. He says, this is not good for you as a church. He said, your unity is not in personalities and power and performance, but in Jesus who saves you. It's a challenge for us all, isn't it? Because we live in a world today of the X factor. We live in a world that wants to you know, put somebody on a pedestal and go running after that particular person. Is Christ divided? Competition, pride, personal allegiances don't belong in the body of Christ. Such divisions, they, they violate the very character of God. And we end up not reflecting the unity of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why the doctrine of the Trinity is so important. And actually, as we go through this book, you'll find that this book is loaded with the doctrine of the Trinity, with reference to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit. And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwell in complete unity, have done from all eternity through to all eternity, in total happiness and harmony. And that is the model for our relationships, how we do life together. 
And so then we jump into this. It looks as though Paul is now taking a detour. And he then goes off and he says, for to those who are perishing, the preaching of the cross is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is a good passage. We need to hear every word of it. We need to soak in it. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not made the wisdom of this world foolishness? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. For the Jews, they require a sign, and the Greeks, they seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles or Greeks. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, we preach Christ as the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Wow, that's quite a passage. I remember hearing... uh, I think it was Trevor Deering many years ago, one of the early charismatics preaching on this. And and he spoke about the foolishness of God and how God does things in a way that mankind would never think of. So, you know, walking around, marching around the walls of Jericho, uh, David picking up stones and, and killing Goliath and all of that kind of thing. The foolishness of God, which is wiser than men. And then he brought it to this message of the cross, how that this in our eyes is utter foolishness. The Jews, they they want some big sign. And the Greeks, they want amazing uh, philosophical wisdom. And and, and Paul says God doesn't work like that. He doesn't work on our agenda. He works on his own basis. And the wisdom of God is much wiser than any of that. The foolishness of God is much wiser than the wisdom of men. And, and And it's staggering. And this is what the cross is all about. For observe your calling, brothers, among you. Not many are wise men, according to the flesh. Not many mighty men, not many noble were called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound that, those which are my, things which are mighty. God has chosen the base things of the world and the things which are despised. Yes, he chose things which didn't exist to bring to nothing things that do, so that no flesh should boast in his presence. That's the key factor. That's where he's getting back. This is why this chapter hangs together and becomes something about which the book launches out. That no flesh should boast in his presence. The way they were living and doing stuff as church, they were boasting in personalities. They were boasting in human presence, in giftings. And Paul says, no. He says, that is not the wisdom of God. That may be the wisdom of this world, but we are not of this world. And so he says there, so that no flesh should boast in his presence, but because of him you are in Christ Jesus. Again, he takes it all up and he says, look, in this, we, we could say through this he has leveled the whole of humanity. Thinking of Paul saying, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, whoever you are, however eloquent, however wealthy, whoever you are, wherever you are, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The cross is the great leveler of society. That's why it's hard for those who are full of pride 
to get into the kingdom of God. That's why it's hard for the powerful. It's not impossible. They will humble themselves at the foot of the cross. The cross is the great leveler of humanity. The cross is the only means whereby any of us are saved and know anything of the goodness and the grace of God. And the cross is what we're called to in our daily living. Each one of us is called to go the way of the cross. And so you see how that chapter hangs together. Where they're looking at personalities, where they're looking at charisma, and he's saying, actually, the answer is Jesus. And so in verses 13 to 31, that is Paul's answer. The answer, brothers and sisters, is Jesus. Paul uses Christ's name, as I said, ten times, impressing upon them that Jesus is the answer, that Jesus is their means of unity. Yes, the Jews want signs, something spectacular. The Greeks, they want wisdom, a great argument. But human wisdom, charisma, eloquence are not the answer, but Christ, who is both the wisdom and the power of God. So the, the wisdom of the cross, is it levelless? levels us, it saves us, it unites us. And that is why as Christians we need the gospel as much as those who are not Christians. Because it keeps us on the level. It reminds us of the ways of this world and it reminds us of the wisdom of God. And so Paul's uh, thinking here as he gets towards the end of it, he says, look, brothers and sisters, it's not boasting in, in people and their giftings, it's boasting in the Lord who calls and equips. That, that changes the whole tenor of things, doesn't it? Boasting in the Lord. And so as we draw to a close this morning, let me ask you this morning, the, the most important question of all is, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour? Do you know him? Do you know him this morning? There's no other name under heaven whereby we can be saved but Jesus and Jesus alone. No other name. Yes, it's exclusive in an inclusivist world. It's an exclusive statement. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to me any other way. You can know him before you go out of the building. It's simple, it's in a moment of time. It's even in the believing as you're hearing, saying, yeah, I get that. I know, I don't know God, I know I'm a sinner. I know, and I understand now that Jesus died for me. I know he asked nothing of me but to believe in him, to repent and believe, believe in him this morning. As you know him this morning... For those who know, from what base are you living? Are you living in the fact that it is he who is the Holy One who has made you holy? Or are you trying with all your might to climb the, scale, the ladder of holiness to be what God wants you to be? It's the wrong place to start. You need to go out this morning knowing, actually, with all of my weakness and imperfection, because I am owned by God, I am holy. I am made completely holy. 
And then as you go to say, Lord, show me how this works out practically in everyday life. At home, in my marriage, in my family, in the workplace, in all those situations and circumstances, it's starting from the place of holiness. Because Christ has been made unto us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our sanctification, our holiness, our redemption. Another question that comes out is, how submitted to his lordship are you? Because this is where Paul draws them back and he he says, Jesus is not only saviour, he is your lord and master. When you make decisions about moving house, changing jobs, different situations and circumstances, how much do you submit to his lordship or how much do you follow your own agenda? How thankful are you? When was the last time you said thank you to someone? Showing appreciation. Thank you for what you did. It was amazing. Really appreciated it. Genuine thankfulness. But above all, thankfulness to God for his grace in your life. And when you start recognising that, it's much easier to be thankful for those around you. What about personal ambition? Yes, we we all struggle with pride. It's one of those things that rears its ugly head. Personal ambition and power, coming back to the way of the cross, learning to discover together what is the mind and the will of God. And then, how do you appreciate church? Did you get up this morning thinking, oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my, the holidays are over. Oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my, I've got to go to church. I hope you didn't think like that. We, we should be looking forward to being together as a people of God. And I, I think I've sensed that as we've gathered this morning. That we have, as we've come out of the holiday season, it's good to be together again, isn't it? It's good to look around and see people you haven't seen for a few weeks. It's good to, to make those connections. So be thankful for your brothers and sisters. Just turn to the person next to you around you and say, I thank God for you. And above all, let's make a lot of Jesus. Make a lot of Jesus. Let your boast be in the Lord. As you realize the gifts he has given you, as you look at the gifts he has given others, boast in the Lord as the one who gives all good gifts. Let's stand, shall we? Father, we thank you for this book, the Bible. We thank you that in these pages we find a word that speaks to us in this day and age, a very powerful and a dynamic word. And Lord, we, you know that we struggle from time to time in, in knowing you, in hearing you, in getting it right. You know at times we, our flesh gets in the way and we, we do things in the wrong way and Lord, we, we mess up. Lord, I thank you that you've got 
a book in here that has a, a, a lot about a messy church. And Lord, I, I know that I get stuff wrong. I, I know that, Lord, you're working on me. And Lord, you're working on us all. And Lord, give us that understanding of your grace in our own lives. That you've not only saved us, but you've made us holy. Help us, Lord, to work out together how we might know what this looks like like in our lives and for us as a church community. Lord, we want to be that city on a hill. We want your light to shine out of our lives, both individually and corporately. And as we go through this series in 1 Corinthians, Lord, we want to encounter you together. We want to encounter you uh, amongst one another. We want to to hear you. We want to, to grow in you. We want to be all that you call us to be. So, Holy Spirit, have your way amongst us. And Lord, we just say thank you for Jesus this morning. Thank you, thank you, Jesus, for the fact that you gave your life, that somehow God died at the cross in order to bring us life. I don't understand that, but Lord, that's how your word reads, that, reads, that Jesus, who was very God, went down into death and destroyed Satan, sin, death, and hell and rose again, the victorious one. Lord, we praise you that you have won and we're on the winning side. Lord, help us to process your will in our lives as we go into this week. In Jesus' name, amen.